Hello and welcome to Macrobytes, the economics and politics podcast from Aberdeen. My name is Paul Diggle, Chief Economist at Aberdeen. And I'm Luke Bartholomew, Senior Economist at Aberdeen. And today we're talking about the state of the Chinese economy. So last episode, we covered long-run global growth and the important driver that APAC and China represent for, for the long-term global economic outlook. But on a shorter-term horizon, the Chinese reopening recovery has been showing signs of flagging recently, and markets have also been somewhat disappointed by this development. So we're going to drill into what's driving this, whether China's recovering service sector can be an impetus for growth for the rest of this year. And Luke and I are delighted to be joined by Bob Gilhui, our senior emerging markets economist. Hi, Paul. And special guest Jonathan Anderson, partner at Emerging Advisors Group, a macroeconomic consultancy that provides research on EM economies. And John's worked at UBS, at Goldman Sachs, at the IMF. He's covered China, Russia, the EMs in a great amount of detail. And we're keen readers of John's research here at Aberdeen. So we're delighted to have him on the pod. Welcome, John. Uh, Thank you, Paul. It's great to be here. So, John, I want to start then by asking you about whether China's reopening rebound really is fizzling out. Is anything more than just a mechanical softening after that initial spurt of growth coming out of COVID going on here? Well, it's an interesting question. And really, there are two big things to say about China's recovery at home. Number one is that if you just look at the good old services stuff, right, people were, you know, cooped up in their flats, weren't able to travel, weren't able to leave. Uh, that is that reopening is is ongoing and things are going all right, right? I mean, you've got uh, people traveling again, you've got people getting out and about into the shops. So if you look at retail spending, if you look at, uh, you know, sort of domestic passenger volumes, they've rebounded nicely and sharply and they continue to rebound, right? So that sort of, you know, um, mechanical reopening of the economy is going on apace. And, uh, you know, that is is not a worry from our side. We're not there yet. Chinese still are not, uh, you know, doing uh, external tourism yet. We haven't gotten flights back up and running. There are a lot of other areas where, you know, you're still in the middle of it. But uh, fast forward three months, six months, nine months, and China does kind of get back online as everyone else in the world has gotten back online. Uh, and that's all good. So that's uh, the good news side of the recovery. The bad news side is on the all-important property market and sentiment in terms of new construction and new investment and all of that good stuff. And there things are very, very different, right? And this, uh, to be clear, is, is the sector that really matters. When we think about China and APAC driving the rest of the world and driving growth, it really is more about commodity demand and import spending and the, all of that is much more heavily tied to property construction and the investment side of the economy than it is to all of those good services things. So, uh, you know, we care a lot about what happens in terms of investment spending in the property sector. And unfortunately, uh, things are still very, very weak. Property sales and activity collapsed last year. People just, you know, not buying at all, uh, not taking mortgages, not committing to residential housing and other property, commercial property as an asset. You had a little bit of a rebound in February and March when you first had the reopening, a bunch of transactions kind of went through. But now you parse what we've seen in April and what we're seeing in May, June, 
things are just right back down to the bottom, right? A sentiment is still very weak. Uh, there's a lot of uncertainties in China. There are uncertainties about what's happening domestically in terms of governance and policy. We're not getting big stimulus and commitment from the uh, government yet. They're, you know, sort of standing back and waiting to see what happens elsewhere. The geopolitics are bad and there's a lot of uh, questions about uh, you know where US China and Russia Ukraine go uh people are just not putting money to work yet in China and uh, we don't know you know where this goes and how how much or how long it's going to take but uh, that part is just not really rebounding at all at the moment we're just still sitting right along the bottom and that's the big question mark and what we're all waiting to see for where China Inc goes and on the the services recovery which you know, is in train and ongoing services sectors elsewhere in the global economy have been you know, very strong over the first half of 2023 and part of that story has been excess savings coming out of the pandemic what does china's excess savings picture look like and is that a reason to think that you can continue to get a very strong service sector recovery for the next 6 months the next year <laughs> Well, interestingly, that goes back to property as well, right? Because if you look at uh, household balance sheets and income statements before the pandemic, right? Uh, uh, Chinese households have a very large gross saving balance, right? They they consume a smaller part of their income. But their net savings is not very big, right? Actually, it fall into roughly zero because with the money that they weren't spending on services and consumption, they were spending on housing, right? The housing boom in China basically sucked up all of the available savings in the economy coming from the household side and of course last year that collapsed right so property demand fell off by about half and suddenly if you look at the household balance sheet they're socking away a lot of money because again they're not spending it on property like they used to right and so now you have cash that's you know sort of picking up and and accumulating in in the banking system and uh, you know one of the big bull arguments coming into 2023 is households suddenly have a lot of cash and there's a lot of savings that's been built up over covid and they're going to want to put that to work right uh, they're not putting that to work in property they're not getting back in and you know sort of fueling the housing boom the way they were 3 4 years ago so the question is will they now spend more on services and spend more on consumption and spend more on other things or are they going to just keep this as a precautionary savings and you know wait and see what happens to China and the world economy. So far again it's early days because you know we're still getting online and getting back up to speed we're still you know trying to get back to pre-covid benchmarks right before we can talk about you know additional strength and boom and so uh, the jury's still very much out but it is true that households have uh, money to spend right in the sense that they're you know not spending it on property assets at the moment. So Bob bring you into the conversation then. Uh, as John said we haven't seen yet a big policy easing from China but given that somewhat you know troubling growth backdrop that he described there there does seem to be growing calls for policy stimulus. So I'm wondering first of all what your thoughts are on the likelihood of any significant policy easing and if there were to be how that would fit within sort of the longer term chinese policy objectives around de-risking and then second taking maybe a, a step away from that i guess at times it can be quite difficult to even measure the stance of policy given that there are various different policy 
levers that policymakers can use at different times. So what's the right way of even thinking about and measuring what the overall stance of policy even is? Yeah, thanks, thanks, Luke. I might, I might actually take those in, in slightly the reverse order, just because I, th- I think the the answer to the second one will help 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 with the f- your first question there. Um, you know, kind of taking a bit of a step back, it's it's always a very tough call to judge the policy stance in China, even in a kind of backward looking sense. Uh, there's lots of policy levers that can get pulled at any one point in time. The authorities are very uh, much willing to pull kind of both the price and the quantity side uh, on in financial markets, be it you know, interest rates, uh, as in other countries, or kind of just the quantity uh, of credit. And of course, we shouldn't forget about the kind of, I guess, the regulatory backdrop as well, which can make such a big difference as we've seen uh, in property. And as you know, John was discussing uh, there. And then add into that kind of complication, the ones which are actually used as the primary instruments have varied quite a lot over time. Uh, and there's some good reasons to expect that the impact of these are going to vary over time too, reflecting, I guess, kind of structural change in the economy and also change within financial markets. So our preferred approach is to kind of summarize a bit more by kind of looking at what's actually the impact. Uh, so we can do this via our China Financial Conditions Index, where ours is a little bit different uh, from others out there and that we strip out an estimate of real equilibrium interest rates from our policy variables. Now, this helps on a couple of fronts. First, it helps account for kind of the downward trend and yields and policy rates that we see over time. And secondly, and I guess relatedly as well, also helps explain why some sections of the economy might still be struggling. So, for example, our financial conditions index has only kind of just returned to about kind of uh, neutral in, in, in April. Whereas if you kind of didn't account for these kind of falling real rates, you might maybe mistakenly conclude that financial conditions had loosened sufficiently, which wouldn't kind of sit very well with the growth outturns last year and also some of this kind of sector specific uh, weakness that's coming through. Now, given past policy easing could still come through with a lag. You know, we have seen the credit impulse improve quite a lot within the first four months of this year. On the one hand, that might temper, I guess, policymakers' desire to do to do a bit more, you know, Paul and John mentioned there kind of the excess savings that households are kind of sitting on, uh, but with little sign, I guess, of reopening causing inflationary headaches, as we've seen elsewhere, the still struggling property sector and some weakness on the industrial side. I think it's all that. It's, it's a fairly easy conclusion that, that you know, some more loosening is, is quite likely uh, to happen. I mean, we've actually just had an announcement last week of a few measures there to support electronic vehicle uh, sales, uh, and the authorities have actually flagged that you know a bit more is coming on the housing side uh, too. But that said, I, th- I think it still seems likely the authorities are going to be wary of losing progress made on de-risking the economy. Growth is just not as high up the kind of list of policy priorities uh, as it used to be, in part reflecting geopolitical tensions. And there's also kind of, I think, some fairly substantial fiscal holes to kind of potentially constrain enthusiasm for some more substantial easing there too. So, John, shifting gears a little bit, I wanted to ask you about the state of local government financing in China, because for some people, this is quite a significant source of concern. Local governments seem to shoulder a lot of the burden for mass testing, pushing up costs, and then their revenue being squeezed by lockdown and the de-risking of the property sector, squeezing revenue from land sales. Yet you've written of the myth of the crisis of Chinese government uh, financing. So I wonder if you could just sort of talk through your thoughts around that. 
Yeah, that's a very interesting topic. And I guess a couple of uh, quick things that I'd like to stress. Uh, number one is if you think about what's happened over the last decade, I mean, you have this massive amount of stimulus borrowing and most of it at, uh, you know, local government affiliated uh you know, finance companies and infrastructure plays, construction outfits. So, you know, you have banks just shoving a lot of credit into these rats and mice in China, and most of them at the behest of local governments. That's how stimulus has, you know, normally been carried out. And most of that goes bad, right? Over the past decade, you see a huge sort of, you know, massive bad credit being created. And then over the past five, six years, China tightens up, starts to, you know, focus on, you know, winding these down, you start to recapitalize banks. And so, you know, sort of stage one is that you write down a lot of these bad debts from local government finance vehicles, and that ends up being, you know, going on to the books of local governments. And so local government debt outstanding starts to go up quite a lot, right? And you worry about how local governments are going to pay for that. Um, and now, of course, you have uh, the property downturn, right? And local governments do take in a, quite a bit from land sale revenues. And it's unclear whether that's going to be recovering sharply, just given how weak property demand in the housing sector is today in China. Um, and all of that seems very concentrated on local governments' books and balance sheets. And it's not small. You know, we're talking about something which is on the order of 40, you know, 45 percent of GDP. The good news, if you will, in China is uh, that most of this stuff, again, as local governments start to come up on problems and financing difficulties in terms of, you know, their debt loads outstanding and uh, drop in revenues, uh, most of this is going to make its way eventually to the central budget, right? This is not really a local crisis per se. Again, if you look at how uh, at overall fiscal capacity in China, you still have a decent amount of room at the aggregate level. Uh, and again, the central government in terms of their revenue intake and you know how their funding is uh, doing better in China today. Things are not that bad. So in the near term, uh, you know, we downplay the risks of a fiscal collapse or crisis or default because, again, you, you know, the aggregate consolidated balance sheet uh, still looks, looks better in China. The second point to make specifically on the property and the land sales issues is that, yes, local governments uh, historically get a, a, a good chunk of their revenue from land sales, but they have a lot of tied and earmarked expenditures that go with this, that go right back to clearing that land, resettling people, uh, you know, new construction uh, commitments uh, and subsidies that go to construction on the land. And so on a net basis, uh, a lot of the land sale revenue actually is going to related expenditure. You're not actually using that to pay for civil servant wages and other sort of normal budgetary needs. And so with land sales collapse and things fall off, so do a lot of the expenditures that are related. You're not going to be clearing land. You're not going to be resettling people. You're not going to be providing uh, new funds for construction and, uh, you know, uh, subsidies to developers, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so the net impact is, is also a good bit less than, uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of people realize. As a result, I mean, it's not pretty. There's a lot of debt out there and there's a lot of bad debt that's been created. But uh, at the end of the day, for us, it just falls short of a looming, you know, sort of default crisis that engulfs China and, you know, collapses the economy. It's going to be dealt with in a much more orderly manner. And there's lots of balance sheets in the back, in, in, in the backdrop, if you will, that can be used to, um, you know, fund and finance. Uh, so yeah, uh, you know, we keep an eye on this, but it's, um, it's not Armageddon. <laughs> 
And John, I want to ask you more about about the prospects for the real estate sector then, because you've highlighted how it is um, the weak spot of the post-COVID recovery. You know, various measures of, of real estate activity are actually not far off some of their kind of Shanghai lockdown lows on on some metrics. So, I mean, what are the prospects for that sector? I would presume, you know, that Chinese consumer confidence should be recovering at this stage of of its of its reopening rebound is that going to play into a stronger real estate sector ultimately does it by contrast take you know policy stimulus eventually to do that job and how does that interact with the, you know the broader de-risking agenda in the in the property sector uh, well <clears throat> yeah that is of course the main issue in china and it's complicated by the fact that you know, policy can help, but at the end of the day, you have to convince households to go back and buy, right? People need to have confidence to take a mortgage, to put savings to work, and to, you know, get back in and commit to buying housing. Uh, and there's no guarantee, right? Uh, things have are still very weak, uh, surprisingly weak, actually. We thought we would see a bit more of a trend pickup. Uh, we're not. I mean, no one is taking a mortgage today, and people are just staying away. Visibility is low. Um, so I guess uh, the first thing to say, and this goes back to what Bob mentioned, yeah, I mean, obviously, we're, we're going to get more stimulus coming through, right? You have to. You can't let this sort of sag at these levels and continue to be as moribund as it is. And and you're already seeing, of course, some regulatory changes and other measures aimed at trying to get property moving. But eventually, uh, you know, bigger guns may have to be brought to bear. It'll be very interesting in the second half of the year and going into 2024, right? Uh, as if, if you don't get uh, property recovering, this is a big part of the economy and a big driver of construction and investment spending. And, uh, you know, it, they're not really super focused on this right now. They've been content to let services recover and GDP growth is still positive and that's all good. But as you get into the, toward the end of the year, yeah, I mean, you wake up and, you know, everything else is sort of back on track, but property is, is you know, dragging things down. You're going to have to uh, find ways of you know, trying to get people's confidence back and put more stimulus in and be it through interest rates, through subsidies and other measures to try and, and get this going again. Bob, so with that kind of context set, then I want to ask you about whether China's growth this year, next year, can have positive spillovers into other emerging markets, into the broader global economy. You know, if I think back to the post-financial crisis recovery, China was very much a tide that lifts all boats. But this seems like a, a different recovery this time around. Yeah, I, th- I think it kind of. It seems unlikely that China can really be this this tight of so I mean, yes, kind of relative to a still lockdown China, its trading partners are getting a little bit of a boost. Uh, but I think it's tough to argue China's really a you know a big big driver here because there's big headwinds to construction, not least from from the real estate side, but you know, maybe also a bit of a retrenchment in public infrastructure spending, depending on how local governments are, are feeling. Um, but I think the key point is, you know, the services dominated recovery just really implies that Chinese GDP is going to have a pretty low import intensity. So that kind of typical link that we think of between Chinese growth via trade and commodities to other countries just, you know, seems much weaker than kind of the normal due to these compositional uh, effects. I mean, indeed, if you look at what we trade data we've had so far this year, 
Chinese import volumes reco did recover somewhat in the first four months of the year versus, you know, their Q4 troughs are up about 3-4%, we think. Um, but that's pretty tepid, actually, when you consider the improvement in exports. They were up about 12%, so that clearly is going to drive some demand for, for intermediaries as part of that kind of re-exported trade. And then also just the re rebound in GDP. So sequential terms, you know, Q1 is up 2.2% quarter on quarter or 9.1% annualized. You might have expected maybe a bit more to kind of come through uh, on the on the import side there. Indeed, if we look ahead through the rest of this year, you can do a bit of work here thinking about import intensity using input output tables as we've done. Combine them with our sectoral forecasts, it just doesn't actually look like there's that much more coming through on the import side from China to the rest of the world. And, you know, FX markets maybe back up some of this gloomy take on the state of Chinese and global manufacturing too. We've seen some pretty decent falls in the, in the renminbi and the dollar uh, versus the dollar and, and also on a trade-weighted basis since February. Uh, I guess maybe the, the, one, the one bright spot would be it's not all the manufactured goods and kind of raw material story. You know, as John mentioned, we've seen this rapid return of domestic travel within China, but the return of Chinese tourists abroad has been a bit delayed by capacity constraints on international travel and a few, a few aspects, you know, the bottlenecks around getting passports, visa issuance too. But this does seem like very much a kind of question of when uh, and not if uh, Chinese tourists return. And clearly that can be a pretty decent boost for many countries. Uh, tourism sectors, potentially over kind of the second half of this year uh, and into 2024. I guess the wrinkle within that would be that it might not always be welcomed by kind of the monetary policy uh, authorities in the countries as tourism flows could clearly push up on services prices further, adding a bit more stickiness to core inflation, which is, you know, a bit of a problem uh, in, in much of the world. So, John, as a final question, I'd like to talk about a somewhat longer term issue and that's around the possibility of this BRICS club trying to develop sort of an alternative financial architecture to the dollar and I guess that's been an objective of some of those countries for some time but perhaps the efforts have stepped up recently in light of Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the way in which sort of dollar power in the global system was used as a means of the US and the West more generally being able to exert foreign policy power. And there's definitely been a lot of discussion in the media recently about perhaps the dollar being supplanted. So how do you think about some of those issues and whether the RMB is going to have a growing role within the global financial system? The super interesting and timely question. And there are many, many things to say here, but I'll try and limit my comments to uh, a couple of areas. And the backdrop here is that... Uh, uh, the main point is that China is very, very schizophrenic when it comes to thinking about the currency, liberalization, the dollar, etc. Uh, on the one hand, absolutely, right? Uh, China is very hypersensitive to the possibility of sanctions. They've seen what's happened to Russia in terms of the conflict. Relations are very bad with the U.S. and the West. And there's a big move to try and ring fence uh, Chinese economy and Chinese trade from sort of, you know, dollar and financial shocks and sanctions that might come through. And so China, of course, is very actively pushing these bilateral uh, trading arrangements and clearing balances and swap arrangements to use uh, the Chinese renminbi 
in uh, trade with key partners. You've seen this from you know Ch Russia to Brazil to Bangladesh. I mean, China is desperately trying and you know actively trying to uh, set up alternative arrangements to just make sure that key inputs into the economy, key goods and services, uh, are insulated from you know potential dollar sanctions and and financial sanctions that might be applied. And so, in that sense, I mean, yes, you're starting to see a lot more marginal use of the RMB and they're you know very active in pushing that out. On the other hand, and this is also very important, China has one of the most closed capital accounts of any country on the planet. It's extraordinarily difficult for locals to get uh, you know just renminbi out of the system to convert to dollars. Uh, China is has a massive liquidity and a huge uh, financial sort of pool of renminbi savings locked up on shore and has been moving, if anything, in the last 10 years in the opposite direction. It's been tightening and tightening and tightening on capital controls at home to try and avoid this, you know, giant pool of liquidity from spilling out and overwhelming, you know, the currency and overwhelming its reserves. And just to give a set of numbers here, I mean, China today, the aggregate size of the Chinese uh, banking system in terms of total renminbi assets liabilities adds up to about uh, 60 trillion US dollars. That's the size of, you know, that onshore trade. And you're backed up by uh, $3 trillion in reserves, which sounds, you know, uh, $3 trillion sounds like a lot, but relative to the size of monetary assets in the system, it's actually very, very small on a relative basis. Um, and so China, on the one hand, is very interested in, you know, putting these, um, you know, these trading arrangements and clearing arrangements in place, right, to use the renminbi and in invoicing and payment. On the other hand, it has no intention whatsoever of opening up the capital account and truly moving the renminbi to a convertible, investable currency that would supplant the dollar, right? I mean, if, again, if anything, it's moving in the opposite direction today to try and make the renminbi less convertible, right? And avoid capital outflows and, and uh, shut uh, doors and windows on, on capital transactions. So the answer is, uh, just to summarize, yes, you're going to see uh, more news flow and activity related to the renminbi, but we are not talking about something that's going to take over from the dollar in terms of you know its role in global portfolios, its role as a reserve currency, reserve assets, because you know the renminbi is a very very closed currency and uh, will remain so for a good while to come, as best we can tell. All right. Well, I think that is an excellent place for us to end today. So as ever, let me please remind you to uh, subscribe to us on your preferred podcast platform. And then all that remains is for me to thank John and Bob for joining us today and their excellent insights and to thank you all for listening. So thanks very much and speak again soon. This podcast is provided for general information only and assumes a certain level of knowledge of financial markets. It is provided for information purposes only and should not be considered as an offer, investment, recommendation or solicitation to deal in any of the investments or products mentioned herein and does not constitute investment research. The views in this podcast are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily reflect those of Aberdeen. The value of investments and the income from them can go down as well as up and investors may get back less than the amount invested. Past performance is not a guide to future returns, return projections, or estimates, and provide no guarantee of future results.